What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared. I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Jacob. Hello, hello. And Ryan. What up, film fan? And Austin. Yo. Welcome back to Nicolas Cage Month, everybody. We are very excited to be talking about the Cage Man. Yes, 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 indeed. Lots of sound effects all around. Before we get started, I wanted to share some Nick Cage news. It's a great time to be a Nick Cage fan. First of all, uh, Ryan actually brought this news to my attention. He's going to be starring in a crime thriller called Prisoners of the Ghostland, directed by none other than one of Ryan's favorite directors, Sion Sono. And if you don't know who Sion Sono is, why don't, why don't you tell us, Ryan? Well, he's one of my favorite just batshit insane Japanese filmmakers. He made one of my all-time classics, Love and Peace, about a giant mute, mutated turtle friend. It's that, that, oh, I remember that, that didn't give movie. it justice. You guys did you it for like a movie night, right? Yeah. Love and Peace and Love Exposure, two of the best movies with love in the title ever made. And yeah, just check out Shion Sono. It's a collaboration made in fucking heaven. This is yeah. gonna be, I can't wait. And both be. Nick Cage... Yes. <laughs> Nick Cage and Sono both say that it's the weirdest movie they've ever made, and that's saying something wow. from both of them. Snoop Dogg! That's saying it's Nick Cage! So, uh, also, Nicolas Cage is about to start an H.P. Lovecraft adaptation, wow. uh, the, an adaptation of his book, The Color Out of Space. No so, shit. That's 2019 is shaping up to be a good year for <laughs> Nicolas Cage fans. And uh, with that... We're moving on to announcing the movie that we're covering today. We are covering Adaptation, the 2002 film directed by Spike Jones, starring Nicolas Cage, Meryl Streep, and Chris Cooper. Uh, as always, let's go ahead and get some first impressions. What was it like watching this movie the first time? What was it like revisiting it? Let's start with Jacob. Okay. God, I love this movie. You know I love this movie. I love it. Love it! Um I, for, so the first time I was exposed, I'm sorry to take a while here to answer this, but the first time I was exposed to the movie ever was a movie poster in the drama department of my high school. There was a drama teacher who you know, and I would walk by this classroom. Every other classroom in school was like a science classroom with like beakers and a periodic table of elements or something, or a poster that was kind of boring Spanish, like Spanish lessons. But I'd walk by that room and you'd see movie posters. So she had, I think gladiator and an adaptation was a poster that she had up a lot or the whole the whole time i was in high school i don't think i saw it in high school but i kept seeing it there and she kept saying man this movie's awesome it's incredible nick cage um i saw it for the first time i think in college and i thought and i'd already seen being john malkovich and that movie cemented for me that holy crap Charlie Kaufman is doing something super, super unique. Mm. So I remember loving it then, loving it and just thinking like, oh my God, like especially the moment when he's on the tape recorder kind of talking about how there's going to be these layers. So it's him talking about him, talking about him. And I was like, oh my God, so exciting. And then there's oh, the dynamic. I always feel like, feel like Charlie Kaufman compared to my brother, which is Donald. Like I always feel like he just doesn't get me, man. He doesn't get me. So anyway, that, the dynamics of these characters and the movie and the writing is just flawless and perfect. And then I watched it again last night thinking this could come out this year and still sweep the award season. It's such a fresh movie that's totally held up. It's now, what, 16 years old or something? 17 yeah, years 17, old? 17, yeah. So uh, it's just amazing. So A++++++++, the best. Love it. And what about Nicolas Cage? He's great. He's good. I mean, he's much more straight in this, but even being able to see the dynamics between the two characters is, it's just flawless acting. Like, you don't have to even, you don't have to even, like, pay attention. You'll just quickly know at a glance from the posture, from the attitude, that it's two very different characters. Yeah. All right, Ryan, what about you? So, yeah, this movie came out at a very important time in my life. You know, like it was really when I was starting to get into movies and filmmaking, kind of really dissecting movies. And this movie was one of those first movies that like uh, uh, that really played with the form in a way that I'd never seen before, <clears throat> just in terms of just how insane the premise of this movie is. And, yeah, like Charlie Coffin you know he he he's like the film school nerds film school nerd like you know he he just does so much with filmmaking and screenwriting in general and this movie is like you know a movie about movies basically which is another subgenre in itself it's one of the best ones of that so yeah like i i just uh, uh 
this movie is very important to me, and I can't believe they pulled it off. It's almost to a detriment. Like, I, I, I saw this movie, loved it so much, that I was like, I was like, there's no way, or, or it, whenever I was writing my own movies, I was kind of like, you know, uh, I don't have to write a three-act structure. Uh, just think about adaptation. But really, you know, you got to be a genius like Charlie Kaufman to really pull something like this off. Hmm. So, Absolutely. yeah, I love this movie to no end. A++. Well, we'll get to that, but I think you might have missed the point because he he does the movie does have a three act structure, and that's what he has to end up adapting to. But we'll get well, there. Well, well, right, yeah, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. You know, when he like it's kind of an ironic thing. You know, when he, the whole Deus Ex Machina uh, shows up, and yeah, there, it, this movie does do a three act structure. But just the fact that it's about that, yeah, yeah like yeah, I yeah. don't know, it's it stuck in my head. And yeah, of course, Nick Cage off the chain, A plus plus for him too. All right, Austin, don't be a fucking wet blanket again, man. What about you? I mean, this movie just doesn't do it for me, guys. I'm, no, I'm kidding. I mean, this no. movie. Oh, <laughs> I was like, God. whoa. God damn. <laughs> the movie's so phenomenal, good. of course. Um, yeah, okay. But I will say this. The first time I ever saw it, I don't think I got it. I mean, no, not I don't think I got it. I didn't get it. And I think it was, for me, it came at a very strange time, too, just like in my intellectual journey. I've always felt like I was five years behind, uh, not like, social skills development but where other people are in their life like I didn't start college until four or five years after because I was doing the LA thing and um like I didn't do the grad school until after or I didn't uh get like credit cards until after or whatever like I've always just been like five years behind like the supposed path that people are supposed to be on and that also was kind of similar for how it was that I came to understand film from an intellectual perspective like when I first got into studying philosophy at a at a higher level um, I felt like everyone was doing Zizek and was doing like film critical analysis and it was supposed to be some sort of like insight into culture and the unconscious truths about who we are and shit like that. And people were like, you got to see adaptation. And I remember I tried to go in with this idea that I was going to somehow extract greater universal truths about who we are in the world. And I was like, I don't really get it, <laughs> you know, like I got the story, but for some reason I felt like I was missing something. I felt like there was a depth that I was missing. And it's only been on repeated viewings, and I've seen it a handful of times now, where I've really started to appreciate the irony, the sort of uh, a sort of like self-exposed look at one's obsessional neurosis and passion, a criticism of the film industry, but then at the same time not being able to work outside of those restraints and having to figure out how to be a creative artist within the limitations that are imposed upon you and um, you know, dramatic irony and things like that that I think are just so profound in this movie, as well as some really lovely human moments for for somebody who is obsessionally self-aware and self-critical of his own limitations and interpersonal connections. Charlie Kaufman can really write a good human story. And so now that's kind of where I've come to graduate in my in my viewings or in my perspective of this film is that it is all the formalist stuff that Ryan uh, and Jacob were talking about are excellent, but at the same time, I think there's a really lovely human element to it as well. So I think it's fantastic. I mean, this is amazing. And Nick and Nick Cage, this this might be Nick Cage's best performance because it's subtle, you know. I mean, just from like a well, more other other than Vampire's Kiss, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, I mean, this is. I'm glad that this movie exists because this is the movie that you point to. That if anyone ever claims that Nicolas Cage isn't a good actor, at least in the traditional sense that you think of, like a good actor that can portray a realistic performance, you point to this movie and that shuts them up. So I'm really glad that this movie exists. But yeah, I've actually only seen this movie twice. The first time I saw it, I think I saw it maybe a year after it came out. I was in high school and I remember liking it, but not as much as I like it now. I mean, I had never really tried to write a script at the time when I saw it for the first time. I had never read McKee. When I saw it for the first time, I had not gone to film school before I uh, saw it for the first time. Now, with all this experience under my belt and just having studied narrative for as long as I have, it was kind of a whole new awesome experience. So it was really fresh, really awesome, really just, I mean, it, it, it was emotional. I mean, and I just love the character of Donald so much. And it's just, it's so good. I don't really have, I, I think I'll just... Leave it at so that. So A plus is across the board. A plus is across the board. I will say that, uh, you know, Charlie Kaufman. I don't. He had like two home runs in a row, and then what are you going to do after that? You know, I mean, in my opinion, oh, he's he has had a bunch more home runs since then. See, I, I, key, uh, Anomalisa, all those are home runs. I don't. I, I'm not to me. Eternal Sunshine. I mean, those are. 
Even that one's not as good as these two movies, uh, this and Malkovich, in my book. I think mm. Eternal Sunshine's probably you, the next best seen one, right? By the, when you watch yes, this the first time, I think adaptation. so. Yeah, and then yeah. like there's so like the the whole the book itself being a true adaptation and like the meta side of the whole narrative, yeah, just adds to it too. So once you have that thrown in there, and then you start to really play with the language of adaptation and and uh, Darwinism and uh, the whole piece is just like. There's, every time I watch it, there are other pieces that I kind of find fun. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's also is, important, it's I think, to note that with Malkovich adaptation in Sunshine, he's collaborating. He's not also the director. But Anomalisa and Synecdoche, New York, he's the director as well, right? So there's something perhaps about his ability to collaborate, particularly with Spike Jones, that somehow... Spike Jones as the maybe visual artist or whatever it is that he brings to the table that that Charlie Kaufman I, himself I, lacks creates a really nice dynamic duo. Whereas maybe you maybe that's why you don't you're not as attracted to the other films is because you're you're missing that something that Spike Jones brings to the table. Because Spike know? Jones does a great job of just like the like I don't know making it like a I wouldn't say street because he I think he does he did skate videos and stuff right and I think yeah. he runs vice yeah. like he's just got a sensibility and he's, like on, Jack, and he's on jackass on jackass so he's like very down to earth dude like he's a very like yo man like let me just hang out and talk to you about something and I think that's a good sensibility to combine with Kaufman because it's pretty different I mean clearly I, Kaufman's I, like yeah. awkward uh, uh, yeah honestly I think he totally has something honestly I, lo I lo fucking love Charlie Kaufman but he really is totally lucky like in the directors he got paired up with because spike jones is just a total genius you know and uh and, and uh same with gondry and if you read charlie kaufman's scripts for these movies we love they're way more indulgent than they end up being in the final product even though right. the ones that the final product is pretty indulgent too like they are way crazier and you got to really give spike jones credit for taking you know something that's already insane making still making an insane movie but dialing it back and Enough to where we can still relate to it, uh, you yeah. know, your everyday. Yeah, because that's yeah. where I, 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 off the rails. Well, I think Anomalisa too. I still think that uh, someone should have said, "Hey, you shouldn't do this voice thing." Yeah, I, I was not a big fan of that. Hmm. Anyway, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, it's a strong choice, and I'll give him that. Uh, it just didn't really work for me. Uh, I want to bring up a kind of a funny anecdote before we get into the recap. So in the Synecdoche, New York podcast, I had mentioned that Ryan and I saw Charlie Kaufman in person at like the the Austin or the Texas premiere of Synecdoche, New York. And someone in the audience asked him this really funny question that I'll never forget. Do you know what I'm about to talk about, Ryan? Yeah, I think so. Continue. Yeah, so somebody asked Charlie Kaufman if the movie Identity starring John Cusack was ghost-written by him hmm. because because it's like very similar to Donald's script for The Three. I haven't seen Identity. <laughs> and then so the question was two-pronged. It's like, one, did you ghostwrite this movie? And two, is this an inside joke in Hollywood? And he said, no, I did not ghostwrite the movie. And in terms of it being an inside joke in Hollywood, he just kind of started cracking up and said no comment. So I thought that was, I thought that was really special. That's um, great. Has anyone Has anyone seen Identity? No. I have not. Yeah, yeah, I have. I really like Identity. Oh, okay. I didn't see the twist coming. Okay. Very cool. Um, uh, also, Jared, I have a small antidote, too. I just so happened to be – I was at a party last night talking to this guy, and he was talking about how him and his dad, they're, they're a dolly company, are responsible for all the double movies. Any movie where a guy is playing himself. Like, so they did Adaptation, like Eddie Murphy, Nutty Professor, oh, you wow. know, uh, uh, Dead Ringers by Cronenberg, you know. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, I, just, I just thought that was pretty interesting that all, like, like one company has, is responsible for all these shots, uh, uh, responsible, responsible for doubling people. And I told them that I'm going to do an Adaptation podcast today. Thought it was pretty cool. That yeah, is pretty cool. Antidote. Shout out to that dude. All right, guys, let's go into a recap. So, neurotic screenwriter Charlie Kaufman has been hired to adapt The Impossible, the formless novel The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. Meanwhile, his socially savvy, albeit goofy brother Donald vows to become a screenwriter by going to screenwriting guru Robert McKee's five-week seminar. Three years earlier, real-life orchid hunter slash botanist John LaRoche is approached by Susan Orlean, who wants to write about him as he pursues the elusive ghost orchid. Charlie struggles with his love life and with writing a script that reflects on the monotony of life, while Donald breezes through a trite serial killer script and starts a relationship. After writing her article and getting commissioned to turn it into a book, Susan starts to desire the kind of passion that John has in his life, but when her and John finally find the ghost orchid, 
she's disappointed that it's only a flower. With his deadline looming and no progress made, Charlie writes himself into his script and flies to New York to meet Susan, but can't muster the courage to approach her. Meanwhile, Donald's script gets sold for a shitload, forcing Charlie to attend a McKee seminar. McKee convinces him that life does have conflict, and Charlie's script needs to reflect that. So Charlie invites Donald to New York, and they begin to suspect something odd about Susan. And when they see her featured on LaRoche's porn site, they follow her to Miami, where her and John start having a drug-fueled romance. Donald and Charlie follow Susan and John to John's greenhouse. When Charlie is caught, Susan decides they have to kill him. Donald dies in their attempt to escape, and just as John is about to murder Charlie, an alligator kills him. Charlie finishes up the script, musters up the courage to tell his friend Amelia he loves her, and rides off into the sunset on a street that is very close to where I live, I might add. End of movie. Very happy ending. Did you did you did you notice that, actually me and yeah, Ryan right used to on... Yeah, me and Ryan used to live right off that street. Did you recognize that this time, Ryan? That was sunset and your street. Yeah, it was. I did. Like Sunset and North New Hampshire. By Vaughn's. Yeah, right? By Vaughn's. By Vaughn's. Yeah. They just put a flower bed down by Vaughn's. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, guys. So let's get the first, uh, the, the obvious thing out of the way. Let's talk about the multiple meanings, multiple meanings of the title. So it's called adaptation. On one level, Charlie is adapting the book The Orchid Thief into a screenplay. Uh, then also, Charlie has to adapt his outlook on art, life, and screenwriting to finish his script. So, um, and we've got the the actual flowers themselves entering the process of to, adaptation that have to similarly adapt. Uh, and <laughs> I love this part. I'm just going to read this. I think Jacob brought this point up to me earlier today, that where the agent says. This is at the very beginning when the agent is talking to Charlie Kaufman about the script. She's like, I guess we thought that maybe Susan Orlean and LaRoche could fall in love. And Charlie's like, okay, but I'm saying it's like you don't want to cram in sex or guns or car chases or, you know, characters, you know, learning profound life lessons or growing or coming to like <laughs> each other or overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. You know, I mean, the book isn't like that and life isn't like that. You know, it just isn't. And I want the movie to exist rather than to be artificially plot driven. And it's just funny because all those things he lists off are exactly what happens in the third act. Yeah, so is the question is, uh, then so that cool. his assessment of what life is like, is it ultimately wrong? If he says life is not like that and he tries to and he tries to like run away from those pressures that he's feeling, is it there's a sort of vindication of those very elements at the end? That no, maybe they are a part of life. They may not be a part of every aspect of life. But they still creep in. Yeah, I think yes and no, because on the one hand, I feel like he's adapting to survive this particular job. But if you're going to like the real meta element to how this affects Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter, rather than Charlie Kaufman, the character, he didn't exactly follow up these movies with more like, okay, I've adapted to understand the necessity of McKee or of storytelling principles because his next movies were more ambitiously formless than this one. Right. Right. But I mean, people do learn life lessons and people do fall in love and, you know, dramas do happen and crimes do happen. And, you know, the OJ police chase was real and people do get eaten by alligators and people do go on drug filled binges and have these crazy passionate experiences. That does happen. And then at the end, you might learn something. You might not. You might never learn something. So I think the point is, at least in one thing we can take away, is that he doesn't want to be hamstrung by that idea that, that every other – because this is what, how like storytelling in Hollywood in particular is told, is that there's a particular character arc and you know there has to be some sort of self-revelation at the end where the hero or the protagonist can't go back to the world from which he or she came uh, because they have somehow been transformed, right? And he doesn't want to kind of like echo that same structure, but sometimes in life that shit does happen. And so maybe there is something interesting about how there is like this pull, if you will, of the forces that are greater than you. Yeah. So I was going to bring this up later, but let's go ahead and dive into it now. I kind of had almost like a religious reading of this movie this time that I hadn't in my previous viewing. Did anyone else think that McKee's Ten Principles are kind of like the Ten Commandments? <laughs> yeah, kind There's of a the lot. Ten Commandments. Well, of it's his thou shalt. Yeah. Good so. Boy. 
it's let me read something that Charlie says early on. He tells Donald, he says, anyone that says he's got the answer will attract desperate people, be it in the world or religion. And then Donald's like, I need to lie down while I explain this. Sorry, I apologize. Okay, go ahead. So sorry. And then Charlie says, okay, there are no rules, Donald, and anyone who says that are just, you know, and he never finishes the sentence, but he's probably about to say, say saying something. But I think what Charlie ends up learning, it's not only that his script needs structure, but that life does too. Mm. Because he's constantly saying things like, I've been on this planet for 40 years, and I'm not closer to understanding a single thing. Why am I here? How did I get here? And I think his journey is also... That instead of just reveling in these questions that he's never going to have an answer to, he realizes that you can't give that to people. He says the fact that life is – or the, the fact that life is random and meaningless, that stories can't bring context to our existence is not something that people want to hear. And it's not something that's helpful. They mm -hmm. want drama. They want to hear that life does produce change and meaning. And in a way, McKee is kind of a religious figure that convinces Charlie that things do need to happen in stories, that people like Young, Campbell, McKee are affirming something that is essentially human. And so in the same way that McKee affirms that these stories, the way that story principles allow you to structure a movie can allow us to make some sort of sense of our lives, not unlike the Bible or the Quran or the Torah yeah, allows us to make sense of our lives. Sense and, structure, yeah. and so I think that that's kind of how, how the adaptation affects him personally as well as with his script. And I had never really thought about it before that, but mm. um, it, it really made me appreciate the movie a lot. I gotta hmm. say, Jared, that of of all of the time we've been doing this podcast, that's like the 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 most I've really you've really shown me the meaning in this movie. I had really fun. I don't like that. Oh yeah, woo! That's a, all right, well, it's only like fifty episodes in. I'm glad you were shown the meaning. Show me the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, learned something. Yeah, I mean, so the, it's so interesting because you you texted me the other day, Jared, about uh, like a video that you want to do pertaining to, I think, yeah, a very yeah, similar yeah. theme. So I feel like your mind is just in this zone, and it pertains to the idea of the death of God and freedom. And so Dostoevsky is known for famously saying that uh, without God, anything is possible, right? Like, if you don't have those restrictions, then fucking anarchy, chaos, total freedom, whatever. Zizek comes along, and his psychoanalytic reading of, uh, of reality, let's say, is the complete opposite. He inverts it, and he says, no, no, no. Um, without God, nothing is possible. And the point being that you need the symbolic order. You need what we might call the master signifier in psychoanalytic terms, which I can define in a second. But you need that in order to allow yourself to be able to figure out how to act and how to think. And that's one of the things that language is, is language provides this structure that conditions how it is that we can talk about a film, for example, on a podcast over the internet, right? Like these are all linguistic apparatuses that are structuring how it is that we're able to talk. They're not forcing us. It's not like an overdeterminism where we are just robots controlled by the algorithms as Colin thought in Bandersnatch, but it's this idea that we are shaped and formed and molded within these structures that open up the possibilities for activity. And I think maybe that's what you're talking about is that you need that, that those are the Ten Commandments, the Ten Principles of Screenwriting. You need those in order to be able to begin your creation of a, of, a, of a piece of meaning, which is a screenplay, which Charlie Kaufman, the character, is trying to, to create. He needs that in order to be able to kind of fit himself within this chain of meaning, or what in psychoanalysis we refer to as the chain of signifiers. So it's something along those lines. You need the master signifier. You need the, the, the meta structure. Right, because without that, then you end up just paralyzed like Kaufman is throughout the movie. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's interesting. So, so then there's like a religious conversion then, almost. He kind of... There so is, who's Donald? Yeah. Is Donald like the foolish... He's like the idiot? Well, I think... I mean, when Donald dies, I kind of just read that as his two elements of his personality are just coming back into one. I imagine that, yeah, Donald is not... He's a figment, oh. right? I mean, in a sense, it's just... Yeah. Not, he's an illusion... Like, there are issues of like, hey, how could he be in the same place at the same time, which is what he – it's the feedback he gives Donald for his right, own screenplay. Yeah, and, so of course, funny. we're able to suspend disbelief. But, I, I, you know, there's – the question came up last night. I watched it with a friend, and the question was, yeah, is Donald real or not? Mm. And there's no definite answer. There doesn't have to be. But I kind of – toward the end, when Donald dies that way, you kind of do see that it's just two parts of his consciousness or of his mind. Right. Or two of his personality coming together. Mm. Yeah, because uh, – I think it's definitely real. No, because in, in the context of the movie, yeah, it, it gets a little fuzzy because it's, it's. I mean, obviously, it's not in real life, there is no Donald. 
Charlie Kaufman doesn't have a twin brother. But, but he did right, so many fun yeah, so many it, fun gimmicks with that though, of course. First of all, there is kind of the thematic hint with the three, but then also after Donald dies, there's like a scar on Charlie Kaufman's head, and then immediately it shows him starting to write again, and the scar is gone. Mm. And there's no funeral. Everyone seems to just go on without too much trouble. We never see Susan Orlean go to jail or anything. We never it seems like even in the world of the script, like that third act never really happened. Like yeah, it was just his a figment of his imagination. Right, and... like Susan Orlean never did those drugs, even in the context of the movie. Like at some point, it just kind of veers off into Charlie's imagination yeah. as he figures out what he needs to do for this third act in order to, as McKee said, wow him in the third act and everything will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if that's supported in the material that, that that the whole third act is uh, an illusion. I mean, you're reading into that a lot, right? I mean, because it, it definitely seems real to me. Well, I would say that the movie certainly invites us to question it, and, you know, like any good movie, it doesn't give us a definitive answer, but there are ve- first of all, there are very few things that happen at all after Donald dies, and it does seem that, you know, I mean, if your brother fucking died... You wouldn't finish your screenplay. You would see a funeral. It really just seems like he calls his mom and he's crying and he doesn't even say Donald dies. And then it just cuts to him writing a screenplay and then he's happy-go-lucky back at at lunch. He supposedly meets his deadline. I mean, we can assume that maybe he got an extension, but I don't really know why we would have to assume that. And there really is no... I mean, the only uh, resolution is with the screenplay. There's no resolution with Susan... I mean, her lover, John, just died. Yeah, but but that's, like, you know, that's just rules of screenplay. You don't have to show all that stuff, you know? You, you just assume that the audience knows it happened. What did you think, Austin? I, I kind of just assumed that it was kind of the, the, the surface-level reading, that he really was the twin, but I'm, I'm really thinking a lot now that I like the reading you're putting forward because that makes a lot of sense also from the perspective of the writer trying to finish something and feeling inadequate feeling like there's a there's a there's a me that is separate from me that would be the synthesis were i able to somehow like connect with it right and that's donald the 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 structure of the marketing of this like where it is co-written by donald kaufman a fake person right in the in the end of the credits there's a credit there's a there's a quote from the film the three as well as in loving memory of donald kaufman and and again, like he pokes fun at the rule that he himself is breaking, which is how could they possibly be at the same place at the same time? Think about that. Like, who is the real? If if you're the audience, who is, he's like frustrated because he can't communicate. Like, never mind, Donald. But like that part, again, knowing how how Kaufman likes to weave those sorts of jokes in and out of his material and making fun of himself constantly and intertwining those pieces, to me it just seems like I wouldn't put it past him. So I don't have a definite answer, but I wouldn't put it past him that Donald's an illusion. I think it's up... Honestly, I had never thought about it until this viewing, and it was mostly because it seemed anticlimactic that he died and they just moved on, and then the scar on Charlie Kaufman's head also gave me pause the other piece was the bald spot like the balding the hair being that precisely accurate like they both had the both they both had the same terrible balding thinning oh, hair really? like identical that part seemed a little strange suspicious mm. i mean maybe he's being intentionally am- ambiguous and if you were to sit down with him at a, a film screening he wouldn't give too much away but if you were to sit down with him maybe over a glass of wine and dinner and have like a, a more intimate conversation with him Maybe he would be like, yeah, I really like that. He's like, I think there's something to that. Or this could have been like a Spike Jones decision. I don't I don't really know, right? Um, no, I haven't read no, the original I, script. Gonna, this is where I depart with y'all pretty heavily because <laughs> I, I think it's pretty definitive that all that third act definitely happened. And, and more importantly, uh, that Donald is in the context of the movie is supposed to be a real person. Like he's in the credits of the movie. And, I, and Charlie Kaufman makes a big point to say like, like, yeah, that's a big part of the movie, that the fact that it's really – he's in the credits. It's really written by Charlie – by Donald. If he was just a figment of his imagination then in, in, the, in the movie, then why would he go through such lengths to make him a real person in the credits? 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that it's, I, I think that y'all reading too much but don't, into that. But don't forget how the film completely plays with fiction and nonfiction. The, the idea of this adaptation of a book that is, uh, that is nonfiction, that's kind of, you know, straightforward, formless, and then is intertwined and extrapolated into a very different movie than the story originally is. Like that's playing with the reality and the meta narrative of him adapting this real book. So, like, I wouldn't put it past him that he's not introducing fake characters and then playing in our real life, in our world, with these ideas of what's real and what's fake. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I'm glad that Ryan disagrees. No, I think it's uh, cool. I, it's but more I, interesting. But I, I, I agree with Austin that it's ambiguous. But I do think yeah. that there's enough, at least enough, to question whether or not he's real. Right. I mean, I, I maybe maybe we can say that it's both. And and what I mean by that is this film clearly is operating at multiple levels. I mean that that's very clear. But let's think about this from like more let's like let's do like a historical analysis. So Jonathan Dem comes along and has uh, he options the book from Susan Orleans, right? Or Orlean. Um and says This is the real story or what is this? This it's is a, the It's a real not it's a non-fiction book by Susan No, no, I mean like Orlean. You're but, talking about the Jonathan but, Dem thing. This is what really happened in yeah, yeah, the real yeah, world. Yeah, no, this is really oh, yeah, what happened. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Cool, so cool. Jonathan Dem options it and he says I'm going to adapt this and what is it? Columbia or whoever the fuck owns the rights to it, right? Jonathan Dem hires Charlie Kaufman and says, I want you to adapt this. You just finished being John Malkovich. It, it was really clever and thoughtful, excellent movie. Can you adapt this? So then you get a neurotic writer who's also a shut-in who's looking at this nonfiction book that doesn't have any of the elements of Hollywood. And he's sitting there, and he's got a studio behind him. He's got a pretty well-known uh, director that's also kind of like optioning uh, this, this script to him uh, or hiring him out, right? And he's got to adapt this thing. And he's sitting there saying, how the fuck am I supposed to adapt this? And so maybe if we think about it from that perspective, it's the in the impossibility of creating a faithful adaptation, especially when it's a book about flowers and a sort of like not so sexy Hollywood tale. And so what you get then is you get him and his struggles with the entire process of adapting somebody else's art into something that is uh, intimately yours, but that also has to have broad public appeal. And so I think when we look at it from that perspective, that's when we can say that's why he has to project Donald as Donald being that element that is missing that can help him see how he can kind of work within the Ten Principles. And at that level, I think that's when we can say, okay, Donald is a projection. That doesn't mean that we have to watch the film and be like, Donald's fake or Donald's real. I mean, those types of questions I think would be even too... Uh, too elementary for somebody like Charlie Kaufman, and maybe I'm just like fanboying about him or something like that. But I think we can kind of look at it from that from that level. But we can also look at it from the level of let's just watch the story of Charlie and Donald, who really are twin brothers, who are just kind of polar opposites. So I think yeah. we can. No, it, it works on so many levels. But yeah. it seems like it's just like another. It's it's he's he's digging up another part of his personality that he needs to workshop this project to get to the finish line. And it's the, yeah. someone who's the complete opposite of him, who is formula driven, who is easy, who can easily be uh, manipulated, or, or can, who is very gullible and is willing to go take a workshop like McKee and will listen. Uh, it's the it's other also, side of his personality he, that helps. Well, he's, he's reconciling also, those he's two. He's also just the. Per- like the perfect idea of a, of a character foil. You know, you could just argue that since we're watching the screenplay that Charlie Kaufman ultimately writes, just just like the third act is a tool that he uses just to up the drama, Donald Kaufman is just a tool he uses to create a character foil, to create some dramatic tension. Mm. Anyway. It's so funny. When, when I watched this too, I was like, this movie is like made for Jared. Like this is probably uh, where Ryan, where Ryan's <laughs> getting off the train here. It's because you know this is Meta Jared. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's not, you, it's not Meta Ryan. So Jared comes to this and he's like, "Fuck, man, I'm I'm trying to look at like I'm going think, deep." But that's why I fucking love this because like Jared yeah. likes it on that level, and then I'm not yeah. disagreeing with Ryan. Like I, I for twenty years or whatever, or seventeen years, have watched it as, "Hey, Donald's real." I don't know. I mean, it doesn't matter. That's the doesn't cool thing. Matter. It really doesn't matter for this movie. It's beautiful either way. I mean, it's got so much to to read into. All mm. right, so the last thing, adaptation. I just want to get through the last meaning of adaptation. It's uh, Adaptation is another way to contextualize character arcs and stories. So the characters must adapt to new circumstances and thus grow, which Charlie ends up realizing that he does have to do. Um, all right, so let's move on. Yeah. Let's chronicle all the meta shit going on in this movie. So obviously, <laughs> obviously I already mentioned the movie we're watching is the screenplay of the character Charlie Kaufman is struggling to write. 
Uh, one of my favorite things is the principles of screenwriting guru Robert McKee structure the film and are even pointed out in the screenwriting seminar. I already said earlier, uh, wow them in the end and you got a hit. So your characters must change and that change must come from them. So that makes the third act a tale of drugs, sex, guns, and character growth. Now, some, one of my favorite things is some of the things he advises against are used explicitly in the movie. So there's voiceover narration where he says, and God help you. <laughs> if you use if voiceover. voiceover narration, yeah. <laughs> but he says, fuck it. And then uh, I love he also says at some point, like, and if you, God help you if you use a deus ex machina. And that's exactly what the alligator is that kills John LaRoche. Um so yeah, and then plus all the other stuff. And there's the that movie itself. He's on about. set for a movie that he once wrote. Yeah, that makes me that that brings me to uh, my next. You're hanging out with Catherine Keener. Yeah, <laughs> my there are a lot point... of good cameos in this movie. That's a good segue too. They had some really good roles. Maggie Gyllenhaal. There's lots of folks in there. Which Tilda brings... Swinton. Which brings me to my next point about love and passion. I mean, right now we've been talking solely about the plot with Charlie and Donald and writing the screenplay, but we haven't been talking as much about Susan. Um, and when you try to – I had never tried to think about how their arcs of Charlie and Susan parallel, but I think there is something here. So Susan wishes that she could love something as passionately as John. But when she finally finds the ghost orchid, she's profoundly disappointed. She says, it's just a flower, and after which she uh, descends into drugs. Um, she's sort of despondent in that whole scene. She's just yeah, you know, yeah. depressed. So just as Susan was disappointed that the flower was just a flower, uh, so too was her book aimless, unstructured, and had no epiphanies. So um, ultimately, she's the antagonist because she doesn't work past this, whereas Charlie does. He affirms the need for uh, a story that makes sense of the mysteries of life, not further confound them, because that's what Susan Orlean's book does. It just further confounds life instead of trying to take that mystery and make sense of it because when she finds the ghost orchid and it's just a flower, she just gives up and she starts taking drugs and she's just like, you know, th there is no meaning to anything. Um, so I found that that was interesting. Yeah, she, she goes the nihilistic route, right? Like she says, right. okay, so there's no meaning, so fuck it, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Carpe diem, seize the day, who gives a fuck? We create our own meaning and we're going to run away from the world. Whereas what Kaufman does, but here's the interesting thing. Does Kaufman affirm it or does he have to project a, nor a narrative and a drama that's not maybe quote unquote really there in order to spice it up? Or does he somehow just become more perceptive or does somehow the world change in the journey? Like I'm trying to think like, like how, how should we understand him? Is he affirmative or is he somehow like, like he has to control and manipulate and fabricate drama where there isn't drama? You know what I mean? Well, here, here's how I interpret it. So they're both looking for some kind of a love, some sort of a passion. And uh, Charlie's love, the only thing that he cares about is totally narcissistic. The only thing he loves right. is himself. He's so concerned what other people think of him that he's paralyzed creatively. Like the opening things or the opening lines of the movie are he wants to reinvent himself as someone slimmer, more attractive, more interesting. He wants to be the screenwriter who speaks Chinese and plays the oboe, which, by the way, is very John Malkovich of just wanting to be somebody yeah. else. The ultimate wisdom comes from Donald in the end, and Donald tells this very touching story about how he was hitting on this really pretty girl back in high school, and then the girl would turn her back and make fun of him. And he says, but it was my love. I owned it. Even Sarah didn't have the right to take it away. I can love whoever I want. And then Charlie says, but she thought you were pathetic. And and uh, Donald says, that was her business, not mine. You are what you love, not what loves you. That's what I decided a long time ago. And so I think what Charlie comes away with is that you shouldn't care what other people think, and you can't live thinking that your passions owe you something, or you'll end up like Susan, having found the ghost orchid and having been sorely disappointed and to fill that void with drugs is kind of what she does. Yeah, I, 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 I think you're totally on to something, and I... I'd even uh, go further and say that it's it's really like about finding the beauty in everything, you know, like kind of like you said a second ago, Austin, is that she sees it, sees it for what it is, and then is like that's it, takes the nihilistic route. But then, like Robert McKee says, you know, if like you can't find the adventure and beauty in in all the normal things that go on every day on Earth, then you know you don't like you don't know crap about life, you know, like so it, 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 basically Charlie 
at the end, you know, what he's done is gone on an adventure for the first time in his life. He's actually gone out and experienced something instead of just sitting behind his typewriter, you know, writing like the cliche, like, you know, writers don't ever really, they're just observing stuff. They're not really living, you know, and then, but he went on his big adventure, you know, people changed or, you know, like big shit happened. His brother died. And then he had, he finally had something to write about. Um, it's kind of how I took it. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting because I think David Mamet once said that, you know, that all of human experience is drama. It's all storytelling. And even what we're doing right now is we're telling a story. It's not a conventional narrative, uh, nonfiction or um, fictional narrative, but it's a, it's a sort of abstract retelling of our experience and our encounter with this film. And we're using emotional inflections and disagreements are taking place. And so there are, again, there are arcs, there are flows and dynamisms that are taking place even right now in this. And I think everything is that way. And there seems to be something about the human experience, as much as I don't like to think too much in terms of essential terms, but there seems to be something about the human experience that is fundamentally story-driven, that is narrative-driven. If you look at the history from what we understand from anthropology, it's about communities telling stories. How do they understand their own identities? They tell stories about their past. How do they understand where they're going in the future? How do they uh, celebrate, you know, uh, momentous events within their society? They tell stories through song and dance or sitting around a campfire. And then, of course, as we progress, we think we're so enlightened in our post-scientific world. Even science, you're still telling a story. You're creating abstract principles based on this infinite multitude that exceeds what you can articulate through words and you're trying to encapsulate it into conceptual abstractions so that you can communicate the ideas so that you can interpret something so you can retest it or whatever to i don't know make penicillin or something like that but nevertheless we're still there's something about the human experience that requires drama and narrative and story and maybe that's one of the things i love what you just said ryan that that's one of the things that charlie finally learns in this is this is the first time that he's able to live his story rather than just being a passive observer from the outside but he's actually he's able to appreciate how it is that drama and narrative and those things are just kind of part and parcel of the human experience i uh absolutely. yeah absolutely I also found that there's a lot of similarities here to Synecdoche, New York, and that Kaufman is always criticizing this, like, narcissistic, solipsistic artist that he can't seem to escape. Obviously, this is a lot of him, whether it's literally him in adaptation or in, what was the name of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character? Oh, God, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, the guy in, in Synecdoche, New York, yeah. Um, I like the part where Charlie's masturbating, and uh, to the literary agent calling him a genius. To Tilda Swinton? Yeah, Tilda Swinton calling him a genius in bed and then <laughs> fucking him. Yeah, so like that's the kind of stuff that he has to elevate himself above because he expects his art to give him something back. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, he cares yeah, yeah. Way too, and he cares way too much about what Tilda Swinton thinks about him. Mm. Yeah, or I mean, anyone. That's I mean, I mean that's another thing. He's obsessional himself, right? Well, uh, and especially since it's such a unique uh, position that he was in. I mean, remember that when John, being John Malkovich came out, it was this out of nowhere hit by this screenwriter who has like the most unique voice that anyone had seen in a very long time. And now he's being asked to follow up with it with a very, very cha big challenge. Mm -hmm. And now, so how would you, you adapt a book like this. I mean, clearly not this, out of, like this out of structure. I mean, it takes a. Well, yeah, I guess. I, it's actually I'd be interested to go and revisit being John Malkovich because I'm curious. Does that? It's been a long time since it's I've so seen good. it, but it's I'm curious. So does good. it not have a three act structure? Is it is it like spit in the face of McKee esque? Because I'd be curious to see if I don't think so. If adaptation or or if um, if adapting this particular book is what broke Kaufman at least for this particular project. No, I, I think John Malkovich definitely follows a three act yeah, structure. Yeah, so. you know weird. Um, my, my, my one beef with the movie kind of is the fact that just the assignment itself for him to adapt this book, it's kind of like, what the fuck were they expecting? You know, like, like who could adapt this into a real movie? You know? So, I mean, I, I feel for Charlie Coffin. It's like, like, but it's not like anyone else. I don't know what else they would have done to make it. I guess they would have made it more normal, but, uh, uh, but the literary yeah, like, agent even said, the literary agent even said, even says like, oh, well, we were thinking that Susan Orlean and John LaRoche could fall in love. 
And, you know, all they wanted to see was, I think, snippets of what we do get in the movie is that disillusioned New York intellectual meets very passionate, salt-of-the-earth, rugged Southerner guy. It's basically when Harry met Sally and then they fall in love at the end. That's what I think the literary agent wanted. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There's there's a there's some really good like interviews with the cast and with Susan Orlean, the actual the author about their experience of the book. Like I watched an interview with Nick Cage talking about his performance and his characters. And then I watched an interview with Susan Orlean. It was really interesting to hear them talk about it. Like Susan Orlean was like, I've had other things adapted for the screen before. And she's like, when producers started calling me and asking me about optioning this book, she's like, I was like, this is like the least of my works that would ever be suitable for film adaptation. Because she just ran into the same problem. She's like, it's a it doesn't really have all of those elements. There's like this nonlinear element and it doesn't really have like the sexy Hollywood stuff that generally producers are looking for to try to package itself. Um, so I think you kind of seeing that interview and listening to her talk is also kind of lovely. And then hearing her own anxiety when she was first given the script and she saw that she's actually in the script, you know, and then she's in the script and she's like, fuck, my parents can never see this, you know? She's like, because this isn't really me and she was uncomfortable with it, but they convinced her and then she started to see that it was beautiful. But regardless, I still felt that there was some level of discomfort because there's an exposure. And she said, and actually one of the things that was so uncomfortable for me is that this man that I had never met before was able to kind of articulate things from reading a nonfiction book about myself and my personal life, with my marriage in particular, she said, that is not explicitly covered in the text, but he was able to kind of like somehow see these anxieties that were actually occurring in my real life and then narrativize them into this story. And she's like, and it was really kind of prescient in that sense. Or maybe so she I, was on drugs and she fell in love. Or maybe Charlie Kaufman like really was looking through the window at her apartment <laughs> yeah, exactly. in New York, maybe. spying on yeah. her. Holy I mean, fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> it just took Donald to push him to do it. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. But those things are all out there on YouTube if people want to wanna check it out. Just Google, like, or just go to YouTube and search adaptation, interview, Susan Orlean adaptation, Nick Cage adaptation, and you'll be able to find some good stuff. I want to hear everyone's favorite funny part of this movie because I think this movie is hilarious. I think my favorite is when Donald's he's explaining a car chase or a chase scene that's going to happen in the three. He's like, you know, so we're going to have uh, cars and then horses and it's going to be like technology versus <laughs> horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is there are good. a lot of like all the interactions between Charlie and Donald are very funny. Like mm -hmm. th a lot of those, are, I just feel like I'm talking. I mean, I, I just, yeah, like there's a lot of times I'm just like, I feel like I'm talking to my brother or someone who's just not because I'm like a deep artist who like gets it. And and for everyone else, it's just so easy. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, God, don't you get it? But why are you happier than me? And why are you winning? So it's like, yeah, it has like all those scenes and interactions between Donald and Charlie just are so funny to me. My favorite, I, 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 I like uh, when when Charlie Kaufman's in his agent's uh, office and is trying to like talk about the screenplay, and then he just sees the same cool thing. woman walk by, is <laughs> like. I fucked her in the ass or something like that. <laughs> but then the follow-up there. No, like, but the oh. follow-up, the funniest part is that the next uh, thing, Charlie's explaining like how hard it is to adapt this work, and then the guy's like, seconds after saying I fucked this girl in the ass, he's like, well, maybe I can help. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's it's that's the same uh, dynamic between him and his brother is him and Ron Livingston, the, the agent. I love it. Because he just seems like he's so like mired by like his, his anxiety and his problems. And everyone, it's just for everyone else, it's, it's like easy. Come on, you, you'll figure it out, you know. I feel like there, there's actually like a, 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 I was, I just thought of this, like a Donald versus Charlie dynamic going in my own Nick Cage education for this whole thing. Because like on the, on the one hand, I mentioned this last podcast, there's Enter the Spider-Verse where Nick Cage plays noir Spider-Man and everyone's talking about how good that movie is and it is good. But like there's the Charlie Kaufman inside of me is like, yeah, but it's Robert McKee good. But Vampire's Kiss is Charlie Kaufman good because it confounds all senses yeah, of what is rules. good, breaks all the rules, and I still love the shit out of it. So, hmm. yeah. I mean, and it, so whenever someone talks to me about their excitement about Spider-Verse, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm also so excited, but I really want to talk to you about a movie called Vampire's <laughs> Kiss. That's good in ways that you didn't even know good existed. <laughs> hey, man, that Spider-Verse script is fucking locked sealed tight man it's, oh, it's yeah. so good 
that thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like all all colleges should just study that script. Hmm. I, I hear I hear that the Lego Movie Part Two that's coming out, also written by the same dudes, is also has many many multiple meta layers to it. There's uh, 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 so maybe that'd be a good one to do at some point. Am I getting through to you, Alpha? That's what uh, AJ said. AJ's already seen it. But um, all right, anyone? Anything I'm trying else? to think of more funny scenes. I think all of them are like it's it's his misery again to me that makes me laugh. Well, oh, I really yeah. like Chris Cooper. He's uh, awesome. Yeah. I feel I like he's he's kind of he's like the unsung hero for me in this film. You know, everyone he talks won? about Meryl because she's amazing, and obviously Nick Cage because he's the lead. And but I feel like Chris Cooper is kind of a really he he's like a central component that that one provides a lot of humor. Like when he's talking about how he's given up on fish, like that's fucking hilarious to me. Um, he just seems I like when he's to naked. be he's like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> I just love him. And plus, I just love him in general. He's got this amazing voice. I could listen to him talk forever. So there's something just his his natural charisma and charm that brings another element to this film that I think is so crucial. You know, he won the Oscar for it. Yeah, he won the Oscar for it. So he, and he did. Yeah, he, he killed it. I love it in the Oscar in the nomination. It is. The, it's not the the nominee for best screenplay is Charlie and Donald Kaufman. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. Uh, fucking rules. Anything else anyone wants to bring up before we go to the mailbag? No, no. I mean, I I, I think people should go check out some YouTube interviews. Nick Cage talking about how it was that he was literally he was full method for both of these characters. So hearing him talk about how like in the same day he'd have to be Charlie and then he'd have to switch to Donald and then he'd have to switch back and how that made him very irritable and irate and frustrated. That was kind of fun to listen to him, especially if we're doing a Nick Cage month and we're talking about like his performance and style. I would just reiterate that people should go check out that YouTube interview. It's got like Greek subtitles, so you'll know which one it, I'm it's, talking so about. It's an interview with Nick Cage or the whole crew? Uh, there are some. There's a Charlie Rose interview with uh, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper, and Nick Cage that's really good too. But this wow. this one I'm talking about is just Nick Cage. All right, rock and roll. What a movie. Let's start out with some voicemails. If you want to send us any comments, questions, insights, whatever you want, 213-534-8807. Let's go. What do we got, sir? We got a... 4213-5-Elf-Hut. Oh, oh, it's 21-Elf-Gut-07. Or Elf-Hut. Or Elf-Hut. Elf-Hut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is. Leave us a voicemail. First voicemail is from John talking about... Nick Cage's face-off. Hey, Wisecrack. It's John from down Georgia calling into the Show Me the Meeting podcast. Just got done listening to the face-off episode and been listening to the Nick Cage month episodes. And a question that I don't know if you guys have really answered, but I would be really interested to hear your thoughts on would be what would you say the Nick Cage-iness of each of these movies is like how different would these movies be if they had had somebody other than Nicolas Cage playing the leading roles or one of the major characters. For example, I think like Vampire Kisses, Vampire Kisses, Vampire Kisses, I I would get it wrong, would be a completely different movie with any actor other than Nicolas Cage giving the performance (laughs) that Nicolas Cage did. But a movie like National Treasure, you could probably replace Nick Cage with any action action movie hero and not have a major change in what the movie is. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear from you guys what you think, how much Nick Nicholas Cage and his acting style plays into the essence of each one of these movies that we're watching during uh, Nick Cage months. Uh, thank, thank you guys for doing what you do. Never really been a movie guy, so you guys get me to watch more movies. Yeah, Hell yeah. baby. Hell I really yeah. do. So All right. Have a great cool. weekend. Hell well, that, yeah, that was dude. a great question. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how irreplaceable uh, is Nick Cage is the, is the question. What do you think? I, guess I, I would say that of the movies we've done so far, yeah, I agree with them. Vampire's Kiss would not, could not exist without Nick Cage in it. It would <laughs> suck without him, probably. I would say Face Off would be a way shittier movie. Or it would just be way hammier and dumber without him 
Well, it's it, just because he it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't have the same thing. Yeah, and then but then in terms of adaptation, I'd say that he could be replaced in this movie, even though he gives a tour deformance part. But it's just kind of like like the script's just too good. Any a lot of people could have done this one good. Hmm. I mean, I, I, think I don't think it's also interesting to note who were considered for these other roles. So apparently. Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger were considered for face-off originally. So just think about that, right? Like you go from that to, and I don't know who the director was at the time, but you go from that to what we end up having now. And then I believe I read that Vampire's Kiss originally was considering Judd, is it Judd Nelson? I don't even know who that oh, is. Oh yeah, Judd Nelson, yeah, from like Fast Times and stuff. Yeah, I, I believe that he was considered originally for that because there was either a scheduling thing or something like that. So just think about about those faces going into those roles, you know? I mean, I can't imagine Sly doing a Arnold Schwarzenegger impression and vice versa. I don't really think that either one of them is uh, as has enough range to really do that like Travolta and Cage. And at least Cage gave... Travolta some craziness to work with to create a really big trying to do, contrast. Trying to do Travolta's voice. <laughs> I feel like if I when I imagine Schwarzenegger and Stallone trying to act like each other, I imagine them doing like bad caricature voices or something. Yeah. It's just so different cuz I guess well I mean I guess yeah. it he, the voices would obviously match, but like the 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 caricature like the acting style I don't know. It's it's it would be really hard to kind of. Not that get... I think that they're not good actors. I think they're great actors, but uh... they are amazing. Yeah, they're not that good actors. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, that, that scene in uh, Rambo uh, when and, he's and talking it... about his buddy whose legs got blown off—that that'll get you. Hey, and you know what? Like, if if nothing else, Nick Cage month is about. Well, what is acting really? Exactly. That's right. What so, is good uh, acting? What is good acting? Yeah, Ryan? what is good acting? And Schwarzenegger, that motherfucker has presence. He might not be able to do much outside the Schwarzenegger, but it works. That's true. He's good. I totally agree. I shouldn't have talked shit. I take it back immediately. Um, also, a Adaptation um, had, uh, uh, I think Tom Hanks was attached uh, early wow. on. What do you wow. think about that? Don't it was, like he, it. It See, that's interesting. He would have probably been good. Right? Sure. No, that, he's a great I, actor. I find that really interesting. What is good? Huh. What do you think, though, is, like, what's Nick Cagey about Nick Cage? Like, what is it that he brings that is particular? In adaptation? Just in general. Like, what's the what's the thing that makes him, like, I think what the, the caller asked is, what's the Nick Caginess of it? So, like, what's the essence? Think, what is it that he well, brings it that on the movie. brings something to life? Yeah, it depends on the role, but he seems to be willing to easily go to 11 or 14. Like, just go all the <laughs> way with it in a way that doesn't seem to break. Mm. Like that's yeah, the he, skill. his unbridled mm. commitment to every role, and then you totally believe it somehow. But while he's taking it, well, I don't know if you believe it. You just are mesmerized at his audacity to 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 take it up to eleven, and you believe it. Sometimes it's pretty remarkable. I don't, no one else is like him. Mm. Yeah, because I I can't stand uh, like hammy, bad, over the top acting. Like I'm, I just it's. Just part of my constitution is that I just love the natural, improvisational, like I studied Meisner acting and then the Atlantic method. And so I'm really interested in these like moment to moment connections, right? So the big over the top hammy stuff has never been something that I've been super attracted to. So for me, this is actually like really challenging a lot of kind of preconceptions that I have about performance and acting as well. And what Jacob just said is so interesting. He's able to take it to 11 or 14 without breaking. And that's it. For some reason, you buy in. Like, why the fuck does Vampire's Kiss work? Like, why am I not... Why do I buy in to what is going on? I don't know. But I do. You know? Well, I mean, I think some people would say they don't buy in and they don't yeah, yeah. believe it. You know? Like, some people Nick Cage does not work for. You know? For sure. He is kind of an acquired taste in, in a sense. But the people who like it, you're, you love it. Hmm. For real. All right. What's the next one? All right. We got a voicemail from Jacob about Big Lebowski. Take it away. Hey, Wisecrack. This is Jacob from Minneapolis. Um, I just listened to your Big Lebowski episode, and it was great. I love that movie. Um, I love Jared's breakdown of its kind of dissection of masculinity, but I thought you'd, you dropped the ball on one of your, your mentions when you talked about how the stranger at the beginning, he... He loses his train of thought. But crucially, what is it he's saying? He, 
He says, I only mention it because sometimes there's a man. I won't say a hero, because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a man, and I'm talking about the dude here. Sometimes there's a man. Well, he's the man for his time and place. He fits right in there. And that's the dude in Los Angeles. And even if he's a lazy man, and the dude most certainly was that, quite possibly the laziest in Los Angeles County, which would place him high in the running for laziest worldwide. But sometimes there's a man. Sometimes there's a man. Oh, I lost my train of thought here. So he says man a lot. Um, he does. He does say a lot of man, man. man but anyways, love your show. Keep up the good I work. bet you he wasn't reading. I bet you that was straight from his mind. I know. I was just thinking <laughs> I, could, I could follow along there with yeah. the song. All right, good point, man. Uh, definitely a lot of mans that I missed out on. Thank you for pointing Thanks, that man. out. Thanks, man. All right, let's Good move boy, on to the emails. So if you want to send us an email, movies at wisecrack.co. Uh, we can keep this short. This one's from Dan. I like this one. Dan asks, what are your personal favorite meta moments in media? Mine has to be the copycat episode of Gumball, Gumball where to confront a Chinese ripoff of the show, they have the characters come face-to-face with their mirror selves. What's better is that this episode was ripped off by the Chinese knockoff as well. So, guys, what is your favorite meta moments in media? Oh, my goodness. Am I going to uh, be primed for this? It's always it's always Sunny has a really good episode about winning an award, that uh, about the winning, an, uh, winning a bar award. And it's basically a sort of commentary on why their super popular TV show has never been nominated for awards. And mm. it's really fucking good. Basically, at the end, you know... Charlie sings a song and says, like, go fuck yourselves. And I felt that that was like, fuck you guys. We don't need these accolades. Even though we would like them, it would make us feel nice, motherfuckers, because we are producing very popular content that's consistently good. But go fuck yourselves because you're not giving us uh, any love. But that's fine because we're going to keep doing our thing. Just because we don't have the snappy banter of a will-they-won't-they relationship and we don't have the bright lights and the perfect like looking people and all this stuff that the typical sitcoms have that get nominated for these things, that doesn't mean that we aren't also a top-notch television show. That's a really good episode. I don't remember what season it is, but like somewhere in like 6, 7, 8, 9, somewhere in there. It's in the, the later portions. Maybe 7, 8, 9, maybe 10, something like that. I think mine hmm. mine has to be between in Inception, the whole thing about the logic of cinema and the logic of dreams paralleling each other is just really brilliant, or the South Park movie about how South Park, the movie is a more crass oh, version so of good. the TV that's show, right. and the Terrence and Phillip movie is a more crass version of the Terrence and Phillip TV show, and this whole dialogue about censorship, you know, in 1999, only a couple years after Columbine uh, happening. It was uh, the South Park movie is still the best musical since Singing in the Rain, and it still hasn't yet to been topped. It's so good. It is great. I remember that scene. Like they're lining up for the movie theater, and the whole movie, the Terrence and Phil film, is like way over the top. And yeah, that's yeah, no, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, F for Fake is one of the best things that oh, yeah. I've so ever cool. seen. So go watch F for Fake. It's fucking we amazing. Do that on, on the podcast. Um, Fuck yeah. Yeah, and then Holy well, Motors. I, I, I have. I, I have uh, two. One, one, one is is those those kids who made the 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 cheap Raiders of the Lost Ark as kids, you know, and then um and then and then it got in the hands of Steven Spielberg, and he's ultimately the one who ended up getting their movie released, which I think is a pretty cool meta moment um, for everyone involved. You, you guys know who I'm talking about? No. Yeah, there's these kids who spent their whole childhood making a shot-for-shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> and then uh, uh, that, and then and there's a whole documentary about it called Raiders, uh, uh, and then yeah, some uh, somebody got in the hands of Steven Spielberg, and then and then their movie got released, so that was pretty cool. And then also, uh, uh, I would say uh, Tommy Wiseau, like at the Golden Globes the other year, I think that's a pretty cool meta moment. Just you know, g- tracing <laughs> from the production of the room to him all of a sudden uh, uh, helping accept an award with James Franco on the golden, the biggest stage in Hollywood is pretty meta. But I uh, feel yeah. like you, you took it to meta, meta because, <laughs> meta, the, meta, because, meta. because these these aren't even examples That's from a text. Yeah, you you took it to the next level, but I like those. <laughs> Uh, All right, I think we can go ahead and wrap it up for today. So this has been the third installation in Nicolas Cage Month. 
It has been. Uh, we're actually. Um, so we will continue with Nicolas Cage month next week. We will get our final one. This episode is actually coming out a little bit early because on Friday we're going to do another episode. So two episodes. Show me the meaning this week. We're going to be doing something on the Fire Festival. So be sure to check that out. But we'll be right back to Nicolas Cage month the next week. And, and let's be honest, the Fire Festival is the Nick Cage of festivals. So it's kind of seems like <laughs> I'm still watching the documentary now. So it seems off the chain. It seems it's gone to eleven. Yeah. All right. Where can we find yeah, you guys on the internet, Ryan? Oh man, you can. Uh, uh, I release uh, videos every week on Ryan's ga- uh, Ryan's shorts and Ryan's game show on the internet, YouTube and Facebook. I loved if you'd subscribe to me because I, I I love you, baby. <laughs> whoever you're, All whoever right, and, listening. And Austin. Uh, yep. Yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I do a philosophy podcast with a buddy of mine named Troy, and then I also do another film podcast with a director buddy of mine. Uh, just kind of after a hiatus, we came back and we did Point Break, and then this past week we did my favorite basketball movie of all time that I didn't realize was as problematic as it is, but it's fucking problematic. Hoosiers. Mm. Oh, yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. And Jacob. Can jump. Uh, we, you can find me on Wisecrack, so at Wisecrack or Wisecrack underscore official on Instagram, YouTube.com slash Wisecrack. Wisecrack, Wisecrack, Wisecrack. <laughs> All right, guys. Until next time, see you later. Adios. Goodbye from Echo Park, California. <laughs>